0: you are listening to Love and Revolution Radio, covering the heart of change and changes of the heart, featuring stories of ordinary, extraordinary people who are waging struggles for love and revolution.
1: this week on Love and Revolution Radio we speak with Hart Phoenix and Jeffrey Weisberg of the River Phoenix Center for Peacebuilding in Gainesville Florida about how to use restorative justice and conflict resolution to help heal and strengthen our local communities
2: i don't know if your listeners have ever heard the term solutionary But that's what we are, all of us on this call right now, is really looking at what are the the strategies and the solutions and the approaches that work.
0: This is Sherry Mitchell for Love and Revolution Radio. Aguano, Wolba, welcome and greetings to you in my native language. I'm coming to you from my home in the Dawnland in Bunawabskic Territory along the shorelines of the beautiful Penobscot River in central Maine. I'm joined today by my ever radiant and luminous co host, Ms. Rivera Sun, and our special guests today, Jeffrey Weisberg and Hart Phoenix. Hello, Rivera.
1: Hi, Sherry. It's wonderful to be doing this show again this week with a brand new, fresh voice. No more cold, sore throat, making us both sound equally uh, melodious. It's going to be a great conversation today. Uh, Very excited to talk about the work of the peace building that Heart Phoenix and Jeffrey Weisberg are doing in Gainesville, Florida, and to dig a little deeper into how we make change through proactive measures in our community. They have lots of great stories to share. I want to let our listeners know that Hart Phoenix is the president of the River Phoenix Center for Peacebuilding. She is also an educator and an activist and a champion of environmental and animal rights, social justice, peacebuilding, and gender equality. She is the co-founder of the Peace Alliance and also the chair of the Peace Alliance's Educational Institute. And Jeffrey Weisberg is the executive director of the River Phoenix Center for Peacebuilding. He is, serves as a Florida Certified State Mediator and is also a founding member of the Peace Alliance. Both of them are radiant, incredible people that we are blessed to have in this world, and I feel doubly blessed to have met personally and seen and some of the work they do and hear many of their stories when I was in Gainesville. Welcome to the show, Hart and Jeffrey. Thank you.
2: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you both and your listeners.
3: Yes, very excited.
0: I'm very excited about this conversation, as our listeners know, and um, hopefully you know. I'm an Indigenous rights attorney, and I do a lot of work for indigent clients within the criminal justice uh, system from Native communities, and have been involved in this whole process of restorative justice and peace building for quite some time. I'd like you to start off by telling our listeners, what is peace building?
2: Well, I often like to share a little of the the context and and difference between peacekeepers and peace builders, and that particularly internationally, when there is war or violent conflict, Um, people would go in to help stabilize and and minimize violence, and those are often referred to as peacekeepers. But once violence is stabilized, then peace builders need to come in to look at a whole systems approach that includes education and economic opportunities, uh, governance and access to markets, as well as developing the skills for communication and relationship building. So it's, it, that's the big part of the work that the River Phoenix Center for Peacebuilding is doing is looking at what exists and what needs to be developed or accentuated even further.
1: And are you working locally, nationally, internationally, all of the above? Well, we're mostly focused in
3: this area. We decided that we wanted to do a pilot, really. We didn't exactly know where we fit in in a community, and we picked uh, the community that was closest to us and and the perfect size to do a model. And so we're working mostly in Alachua County in Gainesville, Florida area. It has a huge university, so we have some of that um, expertise of some of the uh, academics that have been developed in this field, but mostly because we felt that um, all of the major stakeholders uh, were more easy to uh, connect with in a smaller community. And then once we had uh, the um, knowledge that it is, in fact, uh, impactful, then we can develop it in further areas. So, yeah, we have our fingers in other areas, but not as much as... The main concentration is creating a model here in this area.
0: One of the things I want to talk about, I want to go back to something that you just mentioned, Jeffrey, earlier. The whole idea of building peace is really about restoring dignity and a sense of worthiness to those engaged in the process. And you talked about things that people don't ordinarily think of when they talk about restorative justice or justice system in general, and that is the importance of having balanced structured governance systems, access to markets and other opportunities for those who are engaged in this system. Can you talk a little bit about that?
2: Sure. I'm, I mean, what, what we see is that there is a great disparity in most communities or certainly many communities throughout the United States and, and, and abroad where um particularly people in poverty are experiencing a disproportionate amount of uh the impacts of violence and crime as as many have seen statistics of african American youth ages fourteen to twenty four The leading cause of death is is homicide and uh the unemployment rate of minorities are in, in some cases double that of, of the white population. And so we really see that within the larger context of peace building that we must address these areas uh, and communities that are experiencing greater challenges in order for all of us to experience true peace. And from that, we are looking at w- what, are the voices of those who are affected by violence and poverty and impacted in education? And how do we bring those voices to the forefront to really hear their, the wisdom and the, the needs and the requests of what we want collectively to see changed?
1: Will you speak a little bit about what these programs look like on the ground in Gainesville? I know you do a lot of work with cops and at-risk youth, and not just resolving the conflicts between them, but actually transforming the entire relationships between the youth and the police in your town. What does peacebuilding look like on the ground?
2: Well, that that program that you're mentioning, our Police Youth Dialogue, is really one of our leading edges within the community of bringing African-American youth together with law enforcement. We've been doing that program for about two years with the local police department and for the last eight months with the sheriff's department. So we have the city limits and then the county. And so the sheriff is throughout the county and, this, and the cops are within the city. And we've also, last year, introduced it at the University of Florida with the University Police And then next month, we start at Santa Fe College. But it's really designed to help break down the stereotypes that oftentimes young people have of police officers. And frankly, many officers have of young people and in particular, African-American and minority youth. And one of the main emphasis is to humanize each other that police officers, almost every one of them, if they had been caught, they could have been arrested for something that they've done in their past. And to really look at what do young people want police to know about. and, And what we find is that many of the young people actually get so much of their bias and stereotypes of police through the media that when we ask, have you actually experienced these negative things in relation to law enforcement, many of them have not. And so I think it's a really important opportunity to look at the impact and the influence that social media and the regular media has on the perceptions of both young people and law enforcement. But with the ultimate goal of creating connection and harmony and right relationship with the, the community members and, and law enforcement. It's a very misunderstood dynamic that exists. And so we aim to create the opportunities for new understanding and new relationships that translate beyond the program into the actual neighborhoods and schools.
3: One of the things about the police youth dialogues is that uh, there's time alone with the police, and during that time, they are being taught a lot about trauma and how trauma shows up in some most of these young people and that their actions are a result of uh, something that happened within their lives. So that helps to build some understanding, and also juvenile brain development. Uh, there's so much new science on that, that young people really don't have the same capacity to make the decisions that we make, let's say, after 25. But in the meantime, they are adventurous and they are wild, and we all were, including the cops. So they start to understand that this isn't something where they wake up in the morning and they're just going to be rotten kids today you know, at the same time that their only interaction generally is when something's wrong. So when somebody gets arrested in their family or there's a neighborhood fight, so they never see each other just as people. And this is the opportunity to spend five hours, have a dinner together, and to really share. And and the facilitation is such that it it helps to invite a, a much more deeper conversation. But what, what I also wanted to say about this whole model is that, it's not enough just to work with law enforcement and it's not enough just to go into the schools and not work with law enforcement and it's not enough to not have not have the resources to help get bring to to those that are in need so we have been a part of helping to create a comprehensive model and that's kind of the structure when we talk about peace building that's kind of the foundation that holds it that if while we're doing this work of communication skill building and conflict resolution and uh, peace through sports, that we include all of the parties that had some power in, in order to, to make the playing field more democratic. I mean, this to me is the um, this is the democracy that we talk about in the United States that, you know, liberty and justice for all. And, you know, we've been hearing that all our lives. And yet we haven't really seen that. We've seen so much injustice and so much pain so uh, that 's kind of how I see the um, foundational aspect of what peace building is in a community
0: when uh we look at peace building and restorative justice from a traditional indigenous perspective, one of the things that we first look at is this harmony issue, this belief that there is something that is imbalanced and out of harmony within the individual who is engaging in hurtful behavior or committing a crime and that in order to actually prevent those types of behaviors going forward that that underlying issue needs to be resolved first and so when you talk about um on some of your program materials this process of providing self-esteem classes to young people I think that's really important because one of the things where Vera and I teach as you know is um nonviolence. And at the heart of that is being able to humanize ourselves in the eyes of others and humanize others in our own eyes. But sometimes it requires us to humanize ourselves in our own eyes. And I think that we forget about turning that lens back inward, that sometimes we're the ones that need to be humanized in our own view. And the importance of these self-esteem classes that you offer to youth on probation or in detention is really, really vital. Can you speak about that for just a bit?
2: Well I, I love I love what you're you're sharing there. And and what comes to my mind is what we say to all of the kids that we work with, which is that you are not defined by your behavior. That all of us, that conflict is inevitable and and little rascalness and shenanigans, that, that's a normal part of, of development and life. And yet it does not define who we are as human beings. So we come from that perspective of separating that behavior with who we are as human beings. And hopefully that gets instilled and emphasized in various ways through our acceptance and acknowledgement of their, the gifts and skills that every young person has to offer the world. And so in one of our very first check-ins, we asked them, what is one of your gifts or strengths? And to really emphasize those qualities and characteristics and abilities that often aren't emphasized, particularly when we're looking at through the lens of punishment that you're wrong, your behavior is wrong, and you need to account for it and really miss the boat around not only what might be driving that behavior, but also the gifts and strengths and talents that each individual has. So by having that emphasis and looking through that lens, we then can hold the whole person And to address the behavior and the incident and the harm, but also not collapsing that into any kind of punishment or consequence in that respect.
3: It's also an amazing way to help build the resilience or to help young people understand that they do have resilience because then they can see when we ask the question, not what did you do? But well, not only what happened to you, but how amazing it is that you've gotten this far considering all of the challenges in your life. That helps them to see who they are from another lens. Because in some sense, many of them are heroic. They're leaders. The fact that they have emerged from su- such a marginalization is something that they don't get that in school. They don't get that at home. And it's important that they get it because goodness knows, we do need leaders. We need people that are willing to take risks, right, Rivera? We know about you. And and do things that the average person who's living a really, quote, normal life just doesn't have the same kind of energy to push forward in a gentle way the agenda that's necessary for there to be peace.
1: I think it's that's a really important uh, understanding that when we look at all of our great leaders and figures and even the people who are less well-known from uh, nonviolent movements around the world, many of them are coming not through privilege so much as adversity and oftentimes very intense adversity, and that this can become a fertile ground if we're giving the skills and the tools to cultivate that fertile ground into something that can become a, a great source of vitality and energy for change. You know, one of the things on your website is this quote that violence is a public health issue. And it's a really great reframing of violence. It's something that one of our previous guests, Paul K. Chappelle, does in his book, The Cosmic Ocean, is asking why we think that violence is a natural human experience, and nonviolence is something that we really have to go out of our way to cultivate, when we actually maybe should be looking at nonviolence as the normal, as Cesar Chavez thought of it, and violence is something out of the ordinary, uh, and therefore something more akin to a disease or an illness, uh, something that can be cured and resolved, something that has causes, Would you speak a little bit about your perspective on violence as a public health issue and whether or not you think violence is normal or natural to the human species?
2: Well, I definitely think that violence is a public health issue. I mean, the United States spends over $300 billion on non-war-related impacts of violence. And so it, it is just huge in terms of the impact on Our human capital and our economic capital environmentally and and just so many other ways that violence affects people but what I also believe which I think the Dalai Lama talks about this that the vast majority of, of human beings are peaceful and that when you look around in most communities the vast majority of those interactions are, are neutral or kind or nonviolent. And so the news, when it shows those violent episodes, the Dalai Lama talks about those being kind of a call to action and where we need to put our, our prayers and blessings and attention. So I, I really see that violence is a, a call to to address different needs. Marshall Rosenberg, who is a developer and founder of nonviolent communication, he passed away last year, but he said that all violence is an expression of an unmet need. And so part of our philosophy and our approach is to help awaken and develop emotional intelligence within all the people that we interact with. And a part of emotional intelligence is self-awareness to know what I'm feeling, what I'm needing, as well as what you are feeling and needing. And by having that understanding, we increase safety by going towards conflict rather than away from it by addressing what's driving that behavior. And if we approach that in our criminal justice system and in education, in discipline issues at schools, in mental health, that I really believe we would have a paradigm shift away from punishment and towards restoration and including a whole systems approach to help lift everyone into their greatest potential.
0: I think that's really the heart of the issue is that this is restorative, it's restoring wellness, restoring balance, restoring harmony, restoring self respect and dignity. And when people think about restorative justice, they think about it in relation to the criminal justice system. However, restorative justice practices are not just about crime. There are many other ways that restorative justice practices can be used within the community. Can you talk about some of the ways that restorative justice can be used to address other harms in the in the community?
3: We just realized after four years doing this work that our organization basically is kind of answering the same questions that restorative justice generally brings up. It's It's looking for Understanding what happened, who was impacted by it, what harm was done, how can it be repaired, and how can it be prevented from happening again? And those questions are answered by the community members that were affected by it, whether it's just a family or it's the whole community. So what we've realized that as a center, that is actually what we've been modeling without realizing it. I mean, obviously we actually do restorative justice cases within the community. We do that in organizations. We do that in schools. We do that for criminal cases. And then we do it in families. Uh, we do it for battery. Um, and and it's, it, it's such a beautiful process because everyone has a voice and everyone is listening. And when that happens, empathy arises because there's understanding of what it is that drove the behavior to begin with and then there is the opportunity to resource the areas of weakness so it's it's it that is a whole system holding very very sacredly the the conflict or the crime or the misbehaving on whatever level it is But but what is extraordinary to us is that we just realized that when a community has a center like we have created that focuses on the prevention, interruption, and healing from, from violence, that is a collaborative effort. It can't be done by just a center. You have to have the partners, the community partners. And and so it's, it's as we said, it's the university, it's the schools, it's, it's law enforcement, it's the Department of Juvenile Justice, it's the criminal justice system. When all of those people are speaking to one another and have a common goal together, that, again, is the structure that can hold the possibility of healing. And that is the restorative justice process. And in the indigenous, and you know better than I do, Sherry, I'm just, uh, in this field, I'm learning, you know, but what I have heard is that the indigenous cultures, when there is a a crime or a a conflict or something happens within the community, the community comes together. And the community is all these different people. It might be the teacher, it might be the parents, it might be the person that did the harm, so forth and so on. And um, that's, we're we're actually hearkening back to those days.
0: One of the things that I wanted to talk about that connects to what you were just saying hard about the whole community coming together. One of the things that we know about violence is that distance or remoteness affects how human beings use and respond to violence. And one of the things that is probably most problematic about the Western criminal justice system is that it creates distance by excluding people from the community. They are taken away from the community. They're put into prisons. Essentially they're banished. So it creates this distance or remoteness from, um, between the, the person who's been incarcerated and the community. One of the things that restorative justice does is it reintegrates People It includes rather than excludes and brings them back in and creates closeness with the community. And that seems like a really important piece of this process. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the importance of that reintegrative process and closing that distance gap for people who are engaged in these types of systems.
2: Well, one of the things that's really exciting for us is uh, the relationships that we are forging with key stakeholders, as Hart has mentioned, in in a, a few different ways. But particularly, I'm talking about folks in the Department of Juvenile Justice. And so we use restorative practices for young people who have been charged with a domestic violence offense. And so a young person has hit their parent, grandparent, or sibling. And um, we're having incredibly successful results with this this kind of approach with these young people and their families. Because you're, you're right that when there's a harm or a crime, it's a break in relationship and in the trust and in the connection. And so we we really strive to help create the container and the conditions for right understanding and for sharing what was going on and what was driving that and how people have been affected and what do they want or need to see moving forward. And by having this relationship with DJJ, they now have asked us, to use restorative practices with young people who are returning from residential programs. And um, we've just be, begun that process, but we, we see expanding it to uh, men and women coming back from jail or prison, from v- veterans coming back from, from active duty, because in almost all of those cases, there's great disappointment and misunderstanding and hurt And the intention is to help facilitate a dialogue. Uh, And I really, uh, I think that's, that cannot be underestimated how important it is to have support, to have these conversations that most of us have not been trained or were so intimidated or scared or reactive to those kinds of dynamics. And so having a neutral facilitator to help support families to speak what they need and to speak their experience, that that in and of itself is a profound connector of individuals, uh, families and communities.
3: You know, even when you think about kids in school... When they uh, do something and they get uh, suspended or detention and they are so humiliated in front of the class for something they did, they leave. And if there isn't a restorative process for them to reenter, they come in and they come in as such a deficit. Not only have they missed the academics, but they also have a lot of shame, tons of embarrassment, rather than coming into a community that welcomes them back. And realizes that whatever happened, happened for a reason. And that reason is never revealed to the kids and to the other people that are welcome, you know, having them come back into the class. And this is just a setup for failure. And as we see, it happens over and over again. These same kids come back time and time again. Recidivism is up in every area. And
1: and, and there's we don't think there's really a reason for that and we'll be back after a quick break for a station ID and your weekly dose of nonviolence. Mm-hmm.
0: Nonviolent Minute, we'll look at one alternative justice model, that of the Native American peacekeeping courts. In Native American and First Nation justice philosophy and practice, healing, along with integrating individuals into their community, is more important than punishment. The Native peacemaking process involves bringing together victims, offenders, and their supporters to get to the bottom of a problem. While contrary to traditional Eurocentric justice, this parallels the philosophy and processes of the modern restorative justice movement. In the Native worldview, there is a deep connection between justice and spirituality. In both, it is essential to maintain or restore harmony and balance. For instance, in the Navajo peacemaking process, the goal is to help an offender realize that what she or he has done is wrong. The process brings the offender and the victim together to talk to one another. The first order of business in the peacemaking process is to get to the bottom of the problem. In a Western court, one party would sue another for battery, perhaps, and the state would then have to prove all the elements of a crime and use the rules or the law to prove that the alleged offender is guilty. However, in the traditional indigenous dispute resolution process, the spiritual elders who guide that process would say that all of those elements are beside the point. What matters is discovering what led the individual to act in a harmful way in the first place. There's a reason why the harm has occurred. That underlying reason is what needs to be dealt with in order to prevent any additional harm in the future. It is believed that all hurtful and harmful behaviors result from a loss of balance and harmony within the individual committing the harmful action. The goal of the peacemaking process is to discover the cause of that imbalance and disharmony, address the root cause and then bring the individual back to a place of balanced harmony within the community. If we can get to the bottom of a problem, all the other stuff will fall into place. The damage can be acknowledged the harm can be resolved or addressed, and everyone can walk away from the process with a sense of healing, well-being, and also with a knowing that it won't happen again. The peacemaking process is related to the concept of k from the Navajo perspective, which means to restore my dignity, to restore my worthiness. Through the peacemaking process, an offender can come to feel better about themselves they can come to see that their worth is not tied exclusively to their bad behavior. They can learn that they have inherent value that they can connect with. This is especially true when the person can say, I'm responsible, I'm accountable, and the community comes forward to support their healing and brings them back into the fold rather than condemning them and casting them out. They are reminded of their essential goodness, which does a lot to to help the spirit, the mind, and the body of those who participate in the process. In the modern criminal justice system, there's a mindset that when somebody does wrong, the only justice there is, is to punish, penalty, jail, some form of vendetta, or even the death penalty. People believe that if you make the law stiffer, then people will finally be dissuaded from criminal activity. However, there is now a new movement emerging one that is based on the old ways and that is based in love. What we find in these restorative practices is the ability to heal deep wounds within the individuals and the community and a path that restores the dignity and worthiness of all those involved. And it also restores harmony to the community, which really is what we're all seeking.
1: Our featured musician this week on Love and Revolution Radio is the band Crowfoot with their piece, Choosely Northward Bound, which is from their Nada Jai CD. You can find more of their music at www.crowfootmusic.com or the, you can find the new incarnation of the band, Mavish, at www.maivish.com. And now let's return to our conversation with Hart Phoenix and Jeffrey Weisberg. I'm just terribly curious about this one question of, you've started all these programs in your areas and you've involved teachers and the court system and the police and public officials and parents and youth and minority groups. And I'm just so curious, how did you do this? not just why it's so great, but how did you actually go about getting all these people to agree to sit down and go through these processes? Was it a difficult thing to do? Was it easy? Did you find key allies that supported you in this work and built out from there? What was the process like starting to do this work in your community?
3: Well, I would say that the first thing was our intention was to come in and listen. Our intention was to come in and ask the question, what's what's going on? What happened? What's happening within the community where you find yourself ineffective, perhaps, in what you're doing? So it was more of an inquiry rather than coming in and saying, we we have an answer for you. We're going to do this, this, and the other thing. Really, it was about building relationship and honoring everyone that is here doing what they know to do. You know, that's the training. We had the opportunity to be on the national arena, that we were part of the Peace Alliance, that we learned about programming. We learned about restorative justice and social-emotional learning. We learned things that, you know, local people in most communities are very busy taking care of their kids, sending them to school, doing their job, working two jobs maybe. And so we were privileged in that we had a lot of training that we could offer. So that's really how it happened. And we did have one person who I would not call a key ally, but someone that Jeffrey had worked with previously in the mediation world that we shared with. And she was at first a little bit apprehensive. And then she said, well, let's give it a try. And that's kind of how it happened.
2: And and she introduced us to the chief probation officer for the Department of Juvenile Justice. And so we ended up doing a pilot program for our communication and self-esteem program. And at the la- the, that program, the last class, we have the ch- the students teach back one element of the curriculum to their probation officers, to their family, to other members of the community. And we had a judge come to that last graduation, and he was so impressed that he gave his thumbs up, and they started to uh, require some youth to participate in this class who are already in the court system. And they they came up with the idea of giving the students a 100% bonus for their community service hours. So most youth on probation have community service hours. So for every hour they're in class, they get two hours of credit. And then if they finish the whole series, they get a bonus five hours. So that is incredibly innovative, I think, of folks in the Department of Juvenile Justice. And from there, that spread into working with the police and working, getting cases from the state attorney's office and expanding into the schools and so forth. But for people who are interested in, in creating a model or a center in their own neighborhoods and communities, what is essential is having those personal relationships and and having the credibility. We, we hear from many of the stakeholders that people come in and they're not funded well or they, they're very short term. And, and so what, what people are interested in is people's commitment to stick around. And even if it's only a little segment of services, that's better than being inconsistent and leaving. Uh, so we really recommend people develop that competence and credibility in the services that they do provide so that it maintains a level of trust between the people who, are receiving these services or who refer young people or adults to your program?
3: I think it also comes down to living what it is that we're teaching. And part of that is that the belief and the treatment of everyone, whether it's law enforcement, teachers, you know, mental health people, kids in trouble, parents that know what they're doing, parents that don't, but that everyone at the heart of it is looking for a strategy to accomplish whatever it is that they need to accomplish. And sometimes we we don't know what to do. And I think it's, it's our own heart and soul as, as activists, as individuals that are trying to contribute to this world to be humble and to see each other as who we really are. That, you know, most of us are stumbling around this crazy world, this beautiful, crazy world yearning to be the best that we can be. And yet we don't have the tools. And I think that that's a a really important part. And that's part of why we wanted to create this immersion. And that is because we want to be able to help people connect themselves, help us as activists connect ourselves to our own philosophy of fairness and kindness. And understanding and humility so that we can create the possibility of of true connection with, with other.
0: One of the things that I want to ask you about, I can't allow this hour to go by without bringing this up. Of course, we're going to get into these aspects of embodied heart living in our personal commitments to the work that we all do because this is love and Revolution Radio. So I want to get to that. But I also want to address something that we all know is problematic. And you had mentioned that many times this work is poorly funded, and that people have a very difficult time being able to maintain their commitment to it because they don't have the resources to continue that work. And one of the things that I would like to ask you about is the prison for profits pipeline, that there are incentives that are created as a result of having these private prisons for profit that seem like they would be disruptive to the pursuits of restorative justice, that they would be disinclined to incentivize diversionary programs because they actually profit from people being placed into The prison system. And I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about that whole process and about how that might disrupt or interfere with diversion programs and other restorative practices that may be more beneficial to society and to the individuals within the system
2: golly that that's a huge subject, and unfortunately we don't we're not that engaged in it directly, but it is something that is so important for every citizen to be concerned about um, and And this is a very exciting time in American politics um, as around addressing the prison industrial complex. And now, more than ever, I really believe that we have bipartisan support to have really meaningful prison reform and criminal justice reform. So we went to a conference a couple months ago with, with van Jones was there, and he's in partnership with Newt Gingrich and to talk about two quite opposite philosophies and positions, but they are really aligned in addressing this pro- problem and changing many of the mandatory minimum sentences and getting drug offenders out of the prison system, I mean I am completely opposed to privatized prison systems completely and i th- I think you're so accurate around that it, it, it de uh, how, how do you say it de incentivizes or disincentivizes those alternatives and diversions because that's not how corporations are gonna make money. So the solution that we see is to really build these alliances and keep demonstrating programs and services and approaches, certainly like restorative practices, to those allies and people who are open to listening Last night at our police youth dialogue, we had uh, the attorney general's um, assistant there uh, for the state of Florida, and he totally supports these uh, ideas and alternatives to addressing behavior. And so it's just something that I think we need to stand up against is that privatization and say that we want accountability while offering creative solutions. And there are many different examples throughout the country that are slowly embedding in prison institutions that are effective in changing the outcome of men and women as they transition out of prison.
1: And that is something that you guys actually do work specifically on, right? That's uh, part of the peace building work is working with people returning from prison.
2: So we know that 70% of the prison population is going to be released and come back into our communities. And it's essential that we attend to supporting these individuals in developing the skills and the competencies and some strategies of dealing with their anger and their emotions and looking at mental health. And so we, I don't know if your listeners have ever heard the term solutionary. But that's what we are, all of us on this call right now, is really looking at what are the the strategies and the solutions and the approaches that work, and by having that position as opposed to being kind of a naysayer or always focusing on the the, the negative or the problems. So ha- having that that framework and that reference of of being solution oriented is the very thing that helps open the doors to not only prison reform but educational reform and and you know in our justice system so that's it's a very complex issue but we really believe that by providing and promoting these best practices that that's where we're going to get some of that shift in in these different systems
1: well great. Thank you for that, Jeffrey. I wanted to just go back to something that Hart mentioned, which is your inaugural uh, residential peace building immersion program which is starting this year taking some of the practices, the best practices that you've been developing and helping transfer those to other people so they can do this work in their own communities. Uh, but also you Hart you mentioned this focus and emphasis on integrating these rather broad philosophies and practices into our our daily moment to moment approach as activists. How do we really walk the talk of the big words that we're saying? Will you say more about this uh, residential peace building immersion program?
3: Yeah, one of our founding uh, pieces when we first started was that we wanted to create a translatable model. And we thought it would take three or four years, and it did, until we were certain that, you know, this could be really successful and it could engage all of the uh, important stakeholders to help make it happen, the collaborative partners. Uh, so we decided to do a two-week immersion. We're going to have the first week, May 6th through the 14th, and the second week, October 14th through the 22nd, at a beautiful retreat center here in uh, the Gainesville, Florida area. And you, the point being that, you know, many of the, what we teach, whether it's social-emotional learning, conflict resolution, police-youth dialogues, you know, that we, create a curriculum for some we use other curriculum for others communication skill building but we feel that underneath that is the person that's actually delivering it and how do you get to deliver that in a way that can be where it can be received and so that's a, you know that's a lot of it, the reason for an immersion of all of us living together and um doing some Interesting different types of workshops that will help to resource the inner, our own inner selves in a way that is going to be fun and challenging, most probably, but incredibly rewarding. We want to see centers built up, but we want to see it, all, you know, certainly as part of an extension of what we're doing with people that are really well-rounded.
0: I think that immersion is such a really profound concept when you're talking about these programs, because we all understand that immersion programs are incredibly successful when it comes to language. And we really are learning a new or old form of language once again, when we're engaging in these practices of restoration or of peace building, because we've become so immersed in this language of conflict and war that we're restoring, we're rebuilding, we're recultivating and relearning this language of peace, this language of care for one another and empathy and connectedness. And so it's really exciting to me that you're having these immersion programs that are um, part of what you're doing. As you know, here on Love and Revolution Radio, we're very concerned with the aspects of love, compassion, empathy, mutual caring, and uh, harmony that are at the heart of the movements that we're highlighting. We truly believe that this is the key to creating the type of paradigm shift that we need in order to survive into the future. So I was wondering if you could take the last few minutes to talk about this whole concept of love and care for one another and how that actually interfaces and drives the programs that you're providing.
2: Well, one of my favorite quotes of all time is Dr. Martin Luther King. He says, we have no morally persuasive power with those who can feel our underlying contempt. We have no morally persuasive power with those who can feel our underlying contempt. And to me, that is one of the, the core drivers of, of peace building. Because in order to really be successful in peace building, we have to work with people who are different from us and who have profoundly different world views and life experiences. And in order to come together in some level of harmony, we have to be clear ourselves and do that personal work that enables us to sit in the fire with those people who are different for instance working with police i have profound disagreements within my myself around the approach of law enforcement however i'm able to be in those relationships in a way where I have their trust and their respect and their listening, and from that we co-create something different or from across the political spectrum. there's so many differences that exist and and so what I strive for, and I know Hart and I work on this very intently, and what is going to be a major focus in the immersion is how to support people to be in their experience and in their truth while staying connected and open to a dialogue, reaching towards solutions.
1: And Hart, how about you, the woman with the name of Hart? What role does compassion and love play in your approach to this work?
3: Well, it's, it's clearly the, the motivating factor. I mean, there is no doubt in my mind that we are all created equal, that we're part of a sacred and divine journey. I don't know what we call it. I mean, everyone calls it something different, but that we're all interconnected by by the very breath that we take. And um, just that alone helps me to see the other as myself. And... You know, the giant respect that I might have for that big oak tree or for that person that has really succeeded in a way that I haven't, I have to remember that that is me and that I support that. My heart breaks when I think about the injustices that are in this world. It's a very, very painful Experience And at the same time, I'm so grateful for it because I think when it breaks open, there's room for more love and compassion and empathy and understanding and trust. And, and that is uh, my personal journey. And I am very grateful. I call it grace because I don't know how I got it and I don't know how some people have it and some work towards it. But in any case, that is the motivating factor.
0: Beautiful. Thank you so much. I'd like to just thank you for not only being here with us today, which is really, really special, but also for the very important work that you're doing and how you're really speaking this love-based message into the lives of so many people in really practical and active ways. And I also want to highlight one thing as we're heading out that you both talked about there being this need for individual transformational change that really leads to the larger scope of the work that's being done out in the world. And I think that that's really, really key. And that's a really good segue for where we're going next week, where we'll actually be talking about that transformational process. So thank you both so much for everything that you've shared with us for who you are in the world. And for giving us some of your time today, we really, really appreciate you.
2: Well, it's a great honor, Sherry and Rivera, to be in this conversation because I I believe that the the antidote to despair is empowerment. And yet we have to, as in Joanna Macy's work, is that we have to be able to touch that place, as Hart was speaking, of, of our brokenness. And out of that comes profound transformational potential that i think everybody longs for and so if if this call and this conversation can awaken and inspire some new action whether it's prayer or thought or service that it you know may may all beings benefit
1: hear here. Well, thank you, Hart. I want to just remind the listeners as we're finishing today's show that we are speaking with Hart Phoenix, who is the president of the River Phoenix Center for Peacebuilding, and Jeffrey Weisberg, who is the executive director for the Center for Peacebuilding. Thank you both for joining us on Love and Revolution Radio.
0: Thanks this week to our guests, Hart Phoenix and Jeffrey Weisberg. And to my co-host, Rivera Sun. Our theme song, Love and Revolution, is written by and performed by Diane Patterson and Spirit Radio. You can find more of her great music at www.dianepatterson.org.
1: And if you've been enjoying some of Sherry Mitchell's comments on restorative justice and ways of doing justice differently, I would highly recommend following her Sacred Instructions Facebook page for more of that great wisdom. Love and Revolution Radio is a weekly radio program. It is being broadcast in local communities across the country and could be broadcast in yours if you go and ask them. You can find us via the Love and Revolution page on my website, www.RiveraSun.com, and we are Love and Revolution Radio on Stitcher, iTunes, and Podomatic. For Love and
0: Revolution Radio, I'm Sherry Mitchell. Hart and Jeffrey offered us some really brilliant and unique perspectives regarding peacebuilding and restorative justice. There are a number of ways that we can incorporate these practices into our own lives, not just within community organizing, community social work, or a criminal justice system. Next week, we're going to be talking about how to engage these processes within our own lives so that we can bring that to the work that we're doing. Maybe you'll take the time to think about how you can restore, reconnect, reharmonize, and rebalance yourself in relation to the rest of the world by the time we talk to you next week. What if you